Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Hi. Is that? Can you hear me? No. One, two. One, two, three. Should we say good morning again? Uh, Martin, I did wonder when we were uh, hearing from you and Carolyn and praying for you, struck by your obvious capability in a number of areas, and I think you're confident of that. You know areas in which you're strong, in which you've been educated in or prepared in even in your childhood. Um, but I, want, I feel like the Lord says, don't forget that I can transform your weaknesses as well. And that sometimes I take men who are capable in some areas and I teach them to walk on water in other areas as well. And I think as I looked at you and Carolyn, uh, I saw faith on Carolyn and I saw capability on you. And I think sometimes she sees opportunities and openings which you would not consider. And I wonder whether the, the wisdom of the Lord will be the mix of those two things together. Um... Uh, great to be with you last night. Great to be back this morning. The subject that Matt has asked me to talk about is being empowered by the Spirit. Now, this is essentially, ladies and gentlemen, something you do rather than something you talk about. So the next, however long we've got for me to download information, is of, is of relatively limited value. Let us compare it to um, teaching you to paraglide or to windsurf. You know, theory is only so helpful. So we'll do some theory, but then really what you want to do, if you're going to learn to windsurf, is watch somebody else doing it. So second step is we'll try and do some of that. We'll literally give you an opportunity to watch others moving in the Spirit and to watch the Spirit moving and see what we can learn from that. But of course, nobody learns to windsurf unless they have done what? Unless they have Windsor. So that the goal here is not for you to fill your notebooks. The goal is actually that you guys are equipped. This city and the nations of the world are in great need of men and women who are full, empowered of the Spirit, not just full of the Spirit, but have literally learned how to use the tools the Lord has given us. So that's what I would like to contribute towards during the rest of today. So... Consequently, too, this is much more seminar than sermon. With a sermon, you have to sit and listen. With a seminar, we can do it together. So from time to time, I will stop and I will say, are there any questions? But if you have questions and I've not stopped, just wave at me or stick your hand in the air and we can talk as we go along. And I'm really happy to take questions on anything. When I was chatting with Dave ahead of time, I said, I'm going to take questions, which means we haven't got a clue where this is going as a result. Okay? So that is fine by me. I want to help you. If you don't tell me where you're stuck or where you don't understand or where I've not made it clear, then, uh, then there's a bit of a challenge with that. Okay, so that's the first thing to say. Second thing to say is that yesterday evening we said one of the things about the presence of the Spirit is it should make us distinct. We're called to serve our communities, to serve our cities. We're not the only people that are called to do that, or that do that. So what sets us apart? One of the things is the presence of the Spirit. And the truth is that sometimes it's the presence of the Spirit that can overcome people's defenses or reticence in a way that nothing else can. Uh, I've not got time now to develop that, but, but essentially people now process truth in a whole load of different ways in the whole sort of smorgasbord of approaches that we have in our late modern culture. But for some, it's experience first. We had a guy on our last Alpha course. He enjoyed the course. He came on the weekend away. He had been suffering from permanent headaches for two years. The guy who was leading the Alpha course on the Saturday evening of the Holy Spirit day prayed, Come Holy Spirit. When he prayed, Come Holy Spirit, Kobe's headache that had been going on for two, uh, two years finished immediately and hasn't come back since. Now you'll not be surprised to know that as a result of that, Kobe has given his life 
to following Jesus. And for some at least, that is just the best way of helping them find truth and find reality. That said, bear in mind too that what Paul impresses on us is that the power of the Spirit should cause people to fall down on their knees, at least metaphorically and sometimes actually, and declare, surely God is amongst you. That's what he says the point is in 1 Corinthians 14. However, he also says there is another possible reaction. And the other possible reaction, if we do not behave appropriately, is for some to say, surely you lot are out of your minds. That's not a good idea. That doesn't help the mission of God. Do we want the power of God? Absolutely. We can't do this job otherwise. Do we want it in such a way that people are overwhelmed with the sense of God, his reality and his presence? Yes. But you have all seen overexcited small children anticipating their birthday party. And you've seen how they sometimes react or act in the party. And that sometimes their parents even have to take them out of their own birthday party to teach them that overexcitement is not an appropriate way of acting when you have guests around. I sometimes watch Christians and I wonder whether the same isn't true. That sometimes they just forget that when the Holy Spirit is around, that they still need to have a certain level of awareness about themselves in terms of how they conduct themselves so that it is a powerful apologetic for those who are on their way to faith. And I hope that you as a community are trying to build a community which doesn't have thick walls on it but rather a bit like the sort of community that Jesus built, constantly drew other people in and gave them time to think and consider the claims of Christ. And who knows that a big decision takes longer than a small decision. I might decide whether to buy a bar of chocolate or not in an instant, but I would take longer to buy it to decide to buy a house. Why? Because one costs lots of money. It's a big decision, so it takes longer. So you should expect, as men and women look to explore faith, it's going to take them a while. Create communities wherever you are, whether it is uh, Paris, whether it's Zambia, or whether it is Leeds, or somewhere in between. Create communities that give people that time and that process so they can watch, talk to you, see your lives, and feel and experience the presence of the Spirit. That is all said by way of introduction. I want to look... Are we... Do we finish this at, in, at half past ten? I'm not sure who I'm looking at here. At uh, half past eleven, I mean. Okay. All right, let's save the questions till the beginning of the next session. Uh, I'll, I'll just go, I'll just talk for 20 minutes, okay? Then we'll have coffee and then just write your questions down and, 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 and we'll get to them. I want to look in this next little while at the ministry of healing and prayer for healing. Uh, partly because it's very important. About a fifth of the gospel uh, narrative is about Jesus healing people. There's actually 41 different healing stories, but then there's others, or there's summaries, like Jesus healed them all. Or, or, of course, or Jesus healed everyone who came to them. So obviously you don't know how many that was. And then John just said, of course, he said, uh, if we wrote everything down that was that Jesus did, it would fill all the books in the world. So we just know that healing was a really big part of his ministry. I want to teach on it for that reason. I also want to teach on it because it's a great way into this whole question of how we move in the power of the Spirit. And it will open up all sorts of other vistas as well. That's one of the reasons why I want to uh, take questions is so that we can follow some of those uh, different roads as, as you want to as we go along. Bear in mind too that Jesus saw healing as a broader part of his message the kingdom is here. Or in more colloquial terms, God is coming to put all things right. And so he didn't distinguish, actually, not clearly at least, between the different dimensions of that salvation. One minute he would, he would stop a storm. He's declaring one day Jesus will hit, the whole of creation will be healed. The next minute he feeds 5,000 hungry people and he's declaring one day there will be no hungry person. The next minute, he heals someone. You remember the woman who was bleeding and the doctors couldn't do anything for her? And she pushed through the crowd and she touched his cloak and he looked. When he found out who it was, he looked at her and he said, Lady, he said, your faith has, literally in the Greek, your faith has saved you. 
And you think, saved her? I mean, are you saying she's born again? I think what Jesus is saying is this, is that salvation is a whole package. It's a whole deal of putting the world to right, and healing is part of that. So that is the way that Jesus, I think, understands that. So if you and I are going to lay our hands on men and women and see them get better, then it seems to me the first question we have to ask is this, what's God's will when it comes to healing? I mean, do you ever find that? How many people here are afraid for someone who's sick on at least one occasion? All right, pretty much everyone has. Have you ever found yourself, as you've been praying, thinking, I wonder whether this is God's will? Or have you ever found yourself praying or thinking as you pray, I wonder whether anything's going to happen? And therefore just slipping in the phrase, if it's your will, Father, would you heal them? Now, of course, that's entirely understandable, but who knows, that also saps any sense of confidence in our prayers when we're not sure what God would like. How do we get at, this? How do we get at the answer to this? Maybe we should take it this way. Firstly, let's look at Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus was always willing to heal those who came to him. He was always willing. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew chapter 8, where the leper comes to him and says, if you are willing. And it says, Jesus, filled with compassion, said, I will. Love that. I love it when Bartimaeus, blind eyes. Have you ever had blind eyes looking at you and you've looked at them and commanded them to open? Well, that's what happened with Bartimaeus. And Jesus, interestingly, Jesus' first question to Bartimaeus is, what do you want me to do? And Bartimaeus, he was very clear. He just shouted back. He said, I want to see. Well, Jesus didn't say, well, actually, that's not my will for you today. You didn't feel there was any no's there. You know, he said, what do you want? I want to see. Eyes were opened as a result. Remember the centurion servant? Jesus didn't even need to speak the word. Once the centurion understood the issue of authority, the servant was healed. And even the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, we haven't got time to get into that, but she wasn't part of the people of God. But even she, who Jesus said, I'm particularly meant to go to the lost sheep of Israel right now. But she said, but surely even the dog eats the crumbs under the table. Surely we can get the scraps of your mercy and blessing. Jesus said, yes, of course. And her daughter was healed. Now, it's my personal conviction that it's still the same today. We know one day everybody will receive physical healing. There will be no suffering, there'll be no sickness, there will be no pain, because the kingdom will have come. Now, if Jesus is declaring that the kingdom is at hand now, my supposition is that he is wanting now to bring that which is going to come. None of us have any hesitation. One day, we will all be healed. If the kingdom is coming now, then surely that's the heart behind the whole thing, that God would, that God desires to. What helped me on this, as I thought about it years ago, was when I was thinking of it this way. What would happen if Jesus physically came into the room right now? Would you expect him to heal everybody who was sick? And if we would expect that, then I think it's a fair conclusion that God's desire is to heal, just as God's desire is to end suffering, just as God's desire is to free all who are oppressed. But of course, that immediately raises another question. If that is God's will, why doesn't it always happen? You may have noticed I sound a bit bunged up today. I'm, you know, the irony of the situation is I'm actually teaching on healing whilst physically my body is sick at this minute in time. So why is it that God doesn't always heal? Well, again, it is that understanding of the kingdom that is so helpful here. What did Jesus say about the kingdom? He said, it's at hand. Now, if he was here to ask, we might say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, please give me a yes or no answer. Is it here or not? And he would have looked back at you and he would have said, it's at hand. In other words, there are handfuls of it to take now, but it is not here in its fullness. The famous illustration which Oscar Kuhlman took is from the Second World War. After the Allied forces had landed on the Normandy beaches and established the beachhead in June of 1944, everybody knew that the Second World War was essentially over. Hitler's forces were to be defeated. That was an inevitability. 
However, there was more bloodshed in that final year of the war than in the previous four years. So although victory was done, everyone knew that, there was still ground to be taken. There were still lives to be lost and sacrifice to be made. And that's a wonderful picture of what Jesus means when he says the kingdom is at hand. It's here, and he tells us, pray your kingdom come. So when we sense the presence of God during the songs earlier, we know it's at hand. Is it here in its fullness? Is there liberation in every way? No. But there will be. That is sure. That is certain. It is coming. Therefore, we pray with confidence, but our job now is to bring as much of his kingdom, the future age, into the present age as we possibly can. Now, it is that conceptual framework which shapes all of my thinking and all of my understanding in terms of Christian ministry. And I guess it does for many, for many of us here today. So Jesus had this message of the kingdom. I would guess it's likely to be a fire alarm. Okay, if you want to take your seats. One, two, one, two. If you don't, but I, I'm just going to get going again anyway. Uh, if you remember where we got to before the fire alarm uh, interrupted us, was we were looking at this at the framework which should govern our whole understanding of ministry and serving our communities and, and, and church life now, which is that the kingdom is here, but it's not yet. God's will is for all his blessing in every way, in all its fullness, at all times, in every place. But because essentially this framework says there's a battle going on, it doesn't all happen yet. And your and my job is to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven wants to break in on earth. God wants earth to look like heaven. Your and my job is to bring it in that sort of way. And that is why we don't see everybody healed right now. And you find that even within the New Testament, there are numbers of examples of people who were sick. Do you remember how the disciples went to the uh, boy who had epileptic fits in Mark chapter 9? And they come to Jesus and they say, we were praying for him. Uh, I think there's a slide to go with that if you can find it. But essentially they said, we're praying for him and he didn't get better. And Jesus actually said, he said, this saw only come out by prayer and fasting. And he went and he sorted the guy out, and he was all recovered. Secondly, Timothy was advised by Paul. Interestingly, Timothy had frequent stomach ailments. Paul's advice wasn't, Timothy, you really should get some prayer from the healing team. His advice was actually, take a little wine. We haven't got time to expand on that now. <laughs> Thirdly, Paul actually, uh, um, when he was writing again in uh, this in 2 Timothy, he just happened to mention at the end of one of his letters, he said, I left Trophimus in Miletus sick. Now, should we assume that Paul had actually prayed for Trophimus? I think so. I think whenever you read through Acts, Paul is praying for the sick and they're getting healed the whole time. Why would he left his friends sick without praying for him? Well, if that's a fair supposition, then it also follows that Paul prayed for Trophimus and Trophimus didn't get better. An encouragement, I trust, to all of us who have prayed for people and they haven't recovered. That is, we find that in Scripture, it's understood by the fact that the kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. However, despite the fact that you and I will not see the answer to all our prayers, this side of a new heavens and a new earth, Jesus still commissions us to go and do what he did. Go and make disciples, commanding them to do Everything that I have commanded you to do. What did he commanded them to do? Go out, preach the gospel, say the kingdom is here, heal the sick, raise the dead. Freely you have received, freely give. I'd like to charge you to do the same. Wherever you are, whichever nation you are, whichever city you are, and whatever day of the week it is, please go and announce the kingdom is here. Show it by your lives and then release the power of the Spirit. And one of the ways you do that is by healing the sick. So let's run through then some important aspects of Jesus' healing ministry and see what we can learn from them for ourselves. The first thing to bear in mind is Jesus started his ministry after an anointing or an empowering of the Spirit. 
In Luke's Gospel, at the end of chapter 3, it says that he was full of the Spirit. But having come out of the wilderness, we're told he left the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. We know Luke, as a doctor, was very exact and precise. His terminology was deliberate. Clearly, there was a difference between being full of the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. But it was at that point, and we haven't got time to unpack that whole wilderness deal right now, but sometimes Jesus takes us through periods of pruning in order that this fresh growth, he takes us to wildernesses for that sort of thing. Even Jesus grew in the power of the Spirit as a result of being in the wilderness. Secondly, Jesus' motivation for prayer, and I would suggest as is the same, is compassion. Filled with compassion, he said, I will. And if you are filled with compassion, then whether you leave somebody better or not, you will leave them feeling closer to Jesus. I don't know whether you've ever found yourself at the hands of someone who prayed for you, but at the end you felt either a guilty, rotten sinner or at least further away from the Lord than when they started. If so, I would suggest that's something less than the ministry of Jesus. And that, our, and that what we should be doing is when we pray for people, whatever happens, they should be left feeling encouraged, reminded that God loves them, and ready to continue to persevere for God's blessing. Thirdly, bear in mind that there are different causes for sickness. And we find this through the Scriptures. Remember the lame man in Mark chapter 2? Jesus is teaching and his friends take him up onto the roof and dismantle the flat roof and then lay him down. Anyone remember what the first thing that Jesus says to the lame man once he's down through the roof and he's sort of at Jesus' feet? Anybody remember? Your sins are forgiven. Why did Jesus say that? The guy can't walk. I mean, who's, who's, you know, who's ever heard someone say that if somebody is thirsty, the first way to preach the gospel is to give them a drink? And I think, you know, why did Jesus say your sins are forgiven? Was it because Jesus understood that if this man was going to walk, then he had to deal with his sense of guilt first? Was this an occasion where actually the spirit needed healing before the body needed healing? That would certainly be very regularly attested today in, uh, in, in, in scientific environments that there are such things as psychosomatic illnesses. They're just as real as any other sort of illness, if you've got it, but the way that you get better is different. You don't give antibiotics for psychosomatic illnesses. Well, sometimes you do, but they don't help. You need to get at the root cause. I want to suggest here that the root cause was this man's sense of guilt or shame, and that when Jesus dealt with that, he was then able to say, what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And he's then able to say, get up and walk, and he does so as a result. Secondly, the paralyzed man in John chapter 5. Let's just have a look at the verse that goes with that. Having healed this man, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Interesting. What does this seem to imply? That in this occasion, this instance, it was this guy's sin that had led to sickness. Did you know that the church should be a place with a sense of the fear of God upon it? So that when people come in from time to time, somebody might turn to them and tell them what is going on in their hearts and their lives and reveal their sin. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is unless you live free from that sin, you will get sick again. So sometimes we have to help people deal with their sin. Sometimes an appropriate question to say, is there anything blocking your relationship with the Lord right now? Sometimes we'll talk about this this afternoon. The Lord may give you revelation, what Scripture calls a word of knowledge, so you understand what is going on in someone's heart. But if in this case it was sin, it's not always sin which is a relief for all of us who are in any way sick today. Let's just have a look at John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, because they're thinking of this other guy. They're, they're now on this sort of, oh, I know, the sickness thing, it's always sin. So they go, who sinned, this man or his parents, when he was born blind? 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. What I'm trying to say is this healing deal is not straightforward. There can be any number of different causes. The important thing, of course, is to deal with the cause, and then the person gets healed as a result. Sometimes I wonder whether... Uh, has anybody here had the experience of thinking you got healed when you got prayed for? You seem to get better, but then subsequently you got sick again, or, or that's happened when you prayed for others. Anybody had that experience? Okay, a number of us have. Maybe this is what is happening in that instance. We pray and the power of God is released. Somebody recovers in the short term as a result, but maybe it's a case of the root cause hasn't been dealt with, which means that the sickness returns. That's at least one possibility there. So we need to be understanding that Scripture teaches man as a physical being, but with mental, emotional, and spiritual elements to our makeup. And at different times, if we're to pray for the sick, we need to help people with different ones of those in order for them to recover. As uh, I was chatting with my team earlier this morning, one of them said to me, said, uh, essentially said this, you know, I'd really like to ask people questions whilst we're praying. What do you think about that? My answer is, well, Jesus did it. So I think it's okay. So what I'm saying is that when you're praying for people, you can just stop and ask them questions from time to time. Sometimes we make this deal harder than it has to be. So somebody's standing there, we come to pray for them, and we think that we really need to have a word of knowledge to know why they've come up in the first place. I've got an easier suggestion. Ask them. Just say, how can I pray? How can I help? Now, on occasion, you don't need to do that. Because you look at them, and instinctively, you know what you should pray. Great, go for it. If you don't, talk to them. <laughs> don't get over-spiritual in this whole thing. Let's look at some examples of Jesus asking questions. Firstly, of the blind man. He took a blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, we'll come back to the spitting business, and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And the man said, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So Jesus said, let's pray again. Well, isn't that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging that when Jesus prayed for the sick, they didn't necessarily get totally healed first time? That Jesus had to pray more than once. And he wasn't sure, isn't that also encouraging, that when Jesus prayed for someone, sometimes he didn't know whether they were better or not. So what did he do? He asked, and then he prayed again. But he asked them, he said, how's it going? So when you're praying for someone, you can just say, is this working? Or, you know, how's it going? Sometimes when there's, we'll talk later about some of the more extreme physical reactions that can happen when we're praying for people. Sometimes I don't know whether God is blessing an individual or whether there's a sense of internal conflict. So I'll just say, is this good? Are you getting blessed right now? And someone might say, oh, yes. In which case you keep praying. Other times they may say, no, I'm full of my fear, or whatever. At which point you think, okay, now I know how to pray. And if we get, you know, we can talk about how you, how you do that. But I'm just saying, isn't the whole of life a mixture of the spiritual and the normal? I mean, does, isn't that how life works? Scripture doesn't actually, the uh, Hebrew mindset doesn't have a word or, or a concept of the spiritual and the secular. It just sees everything under God. God gave you your mind. He gave you your mouth, so use them both. He gave you your spirit, so keep that switched on as well. Because there's always a mixture. How many, I won't, don't ask you to put your hands up, but I wonder whether anyone here has ever heard an audible voice. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing to get an audible voice? I've got a friend who heard the audible voice of God. He was uh, at a meeting, and somebody said, anyone prepared to be involved in church planting, come forward. Richard went forward. As he went forward, he heard the audible voice of God. At least he said that's what he thought it was. And it said, go and help Dave. So he said, oh, wow, that's amazing. And this is just to, just to illustrate this mixture of the wonderful spiritual and the normal. And Rich said, so now I knew I had to go and help Dave. He said, there was only one problem. 
I knew five Daves and I didn't know which one of them it was meant to be. So he said he spent the next six months talking to all these Daves in different parts of the country trying to work it out. Now, isn't that like your experience of living in God's kingdom? We see through a glass darkly. The kingdom's at hand. It's here, but it's not. And so that's how it is. So it's okay to ask questions as we go along. Uh, Mark 9, verse 21, when Jesus is dealing with the epileptic boy, he asks his father, how long has he been like this? Why does Jesus, doesn't, why does Jesus need to know this? Because Jesus is wanting to know, how do I pray? So he's asking a question. Incidentally, my supposition would be this, that Jesus operated in the power of the Spirit, if you like, in his humanity rather than in his divinity. Now, I realize for those of you who are theologically sensitive, this is a complex area. Um, and forgive me if I'm not being entirely precise, but what I'm getting at is this. Jesus said, I can only do what the Father is doing. He said, I, I can, he said that what I see the Father doing, I will do. So what I'm trying to say is that I think Jesus can operate as a model for us in this. Just as he's our model for living, I think he's our model for moving in the power of the Spirit. So I don't think we say, oh, that's just Jesus as God. You know, I mean, that just rules us all out, clearly. I think this is Jesus operating as a model for us, and therefore one which we can learn from as a result. And thirdly, and we've referenced this already, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus speaks to Bartimaeus, and he says, what do you want me to do? Now, why, why would Jesus ask that? I mean, isn't that obvious? I'm not sure that it is. If you've been in a wheelchair for 20 years, the question of whether in the next two minutes you want to get out and walk is a massive one. It changes the whole of your life. There's all sorts of things you have to take responsibility for that you don't right now. In this day and age, you lose your benefits. You would have to work. You will relate differently. That's a frightening process. So it's not necessarily, the answer isn't necessarily yes. Some people, their sickness becomes their identity. So you say, do you want to get better? They're like, well, I'd have to change my whole identity then. Well, you've probably got a conversation before you pray effectively for them at that point in time, or two. So sometimes this is a process. So it's a, it's a, it's a more sophisticated process, that's what I'm trying to say, than just simply get your hands on them, pray for them, and trust God. Although you should do those three things as often as you can. Uh, bear in mind too that while Jesus seemed to heal at all times, there were times where it seems that he could do more than others. You remember when he was at Nazareth? It says that Jesus could only do a few miracles. Excuse me? Jesus could only do a few miracles because of their lack of faith. So the faith in a community does affect your ability to move in power. And in, in the city in which I minister in, there are groups of the community who are very rationalist, highly educated, very sort of logically orientated. It's hard to move in the power of God with them. And then there are others, and it's just like almost instinct for them. And they don't even believe in Jesus. But they get the presence of God. And so it, it depends on people's openness and faith levels as well. In Luke 5 and verse 17, it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. In other words, sometimes the power of the Lord is here more than at other times. If you like last night, the power of the Lord was sort of lightly here. It was, just a, it was wonderful, but very gentle, wasn't it? And at other times, there's less, and at other times, there's more. But there's times where the presence of God is so thick you can hardly stand up. Remember one time I took my leaders away. Uh, I don't remember whether Matt and Pitt were still around at this point in time or not. Oh, they were. Yeah, they were. I left first. They were. Um, and I just got to the center of the room and I couldn't stand up. The, just the presence of God was too powerful and I just had to lie down in the center of the room. The scripture has a number of occasions where people's response to the presence of Jesus is that they fell on the floor. So that's in the Bible too. 
as we've said, sometimes Jesus had to pray more than once. Bear in mind too, Jesus never blamed anyone for their lack of faith. He never blamed anyone for their lack of faith. I just think that's really, really important. Because there are some strains of teaching, although they don't say that, that is what happens sometimes in some situations. Let's just be aware of that. You want to leave the person encouraged and closer to Jesus. He never blamed their lack of faith. So how did he do it? How did Jesus heal? Well, just as there are a number of different causes to sickness, there are a number of different ways in which Jesus healed. In Matthew 8, verse 15, Why don't we try it? There we go, thank you. This is uh, Peter's mother-in-law. How did Jesus heal this woman? Let's just read it together. He touched her hand and the fever left her and got up and began to wait on him. Uh, when did Jesus pray? In this verse. Oh, there's one guy he's shaking his head. You're absolutely, I agree with you. He didn't. He touched her. Jesus, conscious of the presence of God, was essentially being a conduit. And that's what we are. We're a conduit. And so, so Jesus knew. I don't have to get religious here. I just, I do whatever's necessary. And as he touched her, the power of God went through her. You'll find sometimes that literally by going to someone and putting your hands on them also, not only will you sometimes feel power, but other times you will find that suddenly the Lord's speaking. You'll, you'll get feel the promptings of the Lord for someone. So that's sometimes why it's really helpful to go and lay hands on people. You know this business, have you seen some people sort of praying like that? Sort of hovering two inches above Hannah's head. Has anyone seen that? Yeah. Do you know what, how that developed? Do you know what great theological reason caused that? There was a church in the States who learned a lot about healing. And they met in a gymnasium with no air conditioning in California. And so it was just really, really hot. And so putting their hands on people, just it was just too much. So they decided instead, because it's really hot in the summer, we'd just go like that instead. Consequently, that habit has spread all over the world, <laughs> even to Leeds, where I'm told it never gets hot. No, that's uh, just, just... And thank you for the weather today, by the way. Sun! I, maybe it's always like this. I don't know, but... Uh, <laughs> all right, so... And my point is that sometimes Jesus just touched people and they got healed as a result. Other times, it was a prayer followed by a command. Next slide, please. All right, we haven't got one for this. The, the, just before we get to this one, this is Jesus dealing with Lazarus. So he's standing outside the grave of a dead man. He prays, but he says, Lord, actually, I know you don't need me to pray. But just so that everybody else knows, I want to thank you. And then, he, and then the way that he raises Lazarus from the dead is he commands. Come out! That's a good healing way, isn't it? So he said, I prayed, but I didn't need to. But then he commanded. With the centurion. Let's go back to that, that slide, please. Sorry, the next one, that's it. When Jesus heard this, that the centurion said, you don't need me to come to your house. He said he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith, even in Israel. So he just said, he declared, wow, that's amazing. There is faith here. And we're told when the centurion got back, the child, was, the, the child or the servant was, was healed. On other occasions, it was a word or a command, just as we saw with Lazarus also here. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. I love Luke. He's full of understatement. He, he sat up, and by the way, he began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Other times, somebody touched him. We've mentioned several times the woman who sort of got through the crowd and touched Jesus' cloak. Jesus didn't pray long prayers. We'll come back to that, but Jesus didn't pray long prayers. On other occasions, Jesus used spittle or mud. Maybe we can go to the next slide, please. 
Sorry, I've uh, doesn't look like we've got that one. Here's what it says. Let me just read it to you. Mark 7, verse 33. After Jesus took him away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this time, the man's ears were opened, his tongue loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Why did Jesus put his fingers in a man's ears and then put his spit on his tongue? Any suggestions? I want to suggest it was this, that in the culture of the time, spittle was seen as having healing properties. But I think that probably, more than anything, sometimes people just get very tense. One of the things maybe talk a bit more about, and we mentioned last night, is people sometimes just try too hard. You know, it's back to this thing of, you know, can I make it happen? It's about the worst possible thing you can do for releasing the power of God. Because you can't do it anyway. And I wonder whether Jesus used mud and spittle just to break that for the minute. So they just, and suddenly, you know, once they're back to normal, the power of God hit them and they got healed as the result. I can't prove that, but I just wonder. Sometimes it was doing an act of faith. Whether it was the man with the uh, paralyzed arm, Jesus said to him, stretch out your hot arm. Now, what, could, of course, could the man say? The man could say, but I can't do that. But as he did, as he took the step of faith, so the power of God came on his arm and he was healed as a result. Now, the reason I mention these different ways of healing coming is to simply say this, that this is not a technique. And I cannot teach you a technique because there is no technique to be taught. What there is, is a relationship. Jesus said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. And without him, I can do nothing. And I want to suggest we're the same. So if you want to move in the power of God, if you want to heal the sick, it's all about your relationship with him. That's why we started in the garden last night, in the, walking with the Father, through the presence of the Spirit. Because it's there and the love of God poured out in our lives. Anything that's technique in the end, it's, gonna, it's going to develop communities of faith that are not attractive. You know, someone coming in can spot technique and they just hate it. Particularly now, people are so suspicious of salesmen and television shows that are just too sort of nice and everyone knows it's all fake. And they're just the same in church. Nobody wants technique. Everybody wants relationship because God made us that way. And the way for you and I to move in the power of the Spirit is by a relationship with the Father. And it's learning to be dependent on him. So Jesus is our model. So the question we should always ask is, what is the Father doing? And then do that. So how do we become aware of what the Father is doing? Let me just suggest some things very quickly. Firstly, of course, spend time in prayer. Jesus got up early every morning. But he found ways, and all of us need to find ways of spending time in prayer. You know that first word of the Lord's Prayer? Jesus said, Abba, it was entirely revolutionary to use the name that a child would use for their earthly father for God. The Old Testament term for God, Yahweh, actually doesn't, you literally couldn't say it because there were no vowels to it. God was too holy to be spoken of. You've got Jesus, he comes on the scene. They say, teach us to pray. He says, Abba. He says, this is intimate. This is close. This is loving. I want to encourage you with all my heart. This is more important than anything else that I say. Develop a relationship with the Father. Love him and be loved by him. And then you'll do what he says. Because you'll hear him and you'll be sensitized to him. Worship, for we're simply more sensitive to those that we love. Stay relaxed and natural. As we've said, trying harder doesn't help. And emotionalism tends to obscure what's going on rather than assist it. That's different from emotion. You understand that? Authentic emotion... It's entirely appropriate. There are times where we shake, cry, shout, all of those things, because that's the natural thing to do. That's wonderful. But we've not got to do those things to get the other. So we're to hear the Father's thoughts, speak the Father's words, and do the Father's works. Now let me just give you a model for prayer, and then we're going to show you some. Okay? So last bit of the surfboard, surfboarding theory. What I want to do is give you a five-step prayer model 
which was actually initially developed by John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement of Churches, which is now a, a, a worldwide movement. And I think it's helpful. It's a helpful five-step way, five way of asking what is the Father doing. Here's number one. So the first thing, so let's just imagine you've got someone in front of you and you're going to pray for them. Step number one is the interview. In other words, you're asking them what's wrong. Here you're getting an idea of what the problem is. Now I suggest avoid long medical histories. They're more likely to, fit, to make you depressed than informed. You know, some people who've been in and out of hospital for 15 years are happy to tell you every move, every time in and out. If you, you know, that's not what you're after. You're just after some picture of the topography of that, you know, what's the problem, how can I pray? But as you're doing that, you should have one ear to the person and the other ear to the Father. This afternoon we'll talk about how we hear God's voice. But you're listening in both ways at once. You're listening to the person, but you're constantly asking, asking the Father at the same time what's going on and how you should pray. So if number one is the interview, asking them what's wrong, number two is the diagnosis. You're thinking, what is the cause of this problem? Is, it, is this person, is it their guilt? Is it their fear? Is it their sin? Is it a physical problem? And sometimes at that point of time, you will just feel prompted to ask a question. How do you feel about such and such? Is this been an issue in your life? Have you ever struggled with this? I find myself thinking about this. It's really strange. I just wanted to mention it in case you thought it was relevant. And sometimes God will guide you through that process. If he doesn't, don't worry. Mark Twain once said, if the wind is not blowing and you're in a boat, row. I think it's good advice for many things in life. It's good for prayer too. Sometimes the Lord guides us at the outset. When he doesn't, pray anyway you'll often find he guides you as you get going. Step number three, the prayer selection. How am I going to pray? Or what sort of prayer is it that I'm going to pray? Is it a God-directed prayer? In other words, intercession. That's probably what most of us are most used to praying. Secondly, may it be a command. Do I need to speak to the condition? Arm be healed. Knees straighten, I be opened. Jesus did much more of that than he did praying. Thirdly, uh, or listen to the Spirit as you're doing that. Matt, do you mind uh, illustrating? Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, too bad. Um, so here's this, I just want to show the typical deal from which I come across a lot. Is that, so, you know, I'm praying for Matt, and let's say he's got uh, a shoulder problem, okay? Now, typically, what, what people do is they start off with, Dear Lord, thank you for Matt. Thank you for the wonderful man that he is. Now, firstly, that is true, but it's also unnecessary at this point in time. You don't need to persuade God that Matt is wonderful. You don't need to... Pers and, and Matt's wonderfulness, or lack of it, has nothing to do whether God would heal him or not. Why would God heal Matt? Because of Jesus on the cross. So firstly, we've not got to persuade... We've not got to persuade God that Matt is worthy of healing. And, and then people go on... You know, and, and so I want to ask you. And then they find five or six different ways of praying the prayer. Now, that's essentially, it's intercession. Now, occasionally that may be appropriate. But I want to suggest that rather than doing that, you just wait, invite the Spirit to come, and then listen to the Lord. Your prayers are much more likely to be short and sharp. Sentences. Commands. Maybe a petition. But as a result, what you're trying to do is you're trying to work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. So, step number four, which we've now got into, is the prayer engagement. In other words, get praying. Lay your hands on them. And I want to encourage you, 
If you don't know what else to pray, pray, invite the Holy Spirit to come. Now, who noticed what happened last night when we invited the Holy Spirit to come? Did he come immediately on most people? No. There were a few people towards the back who he came on straight away. As soon as I prayed, I could see the Spirit resting on, on a few people. But for most people, that wasn't the case. Now, was the Holy Spirit resting on lots of us by the end of the time? He was, all over the place. So sometimes you just need to give him a bit of time. I think it's a trust deal, it's a faith deal. So we wait and we let him come. Now when he, as he comes, sometimes there are physical manifestations. Sometimes there's shaking. Sometimes that's very gentle, other times it's more violent. It can be just part of the body or it can be the whole body. But it's very common in Scripture that when the power of God is present, present a body, the, the physical body shakes. I mean, isn't, is it surprising that, for the, that the physical body responds when the creator of the universe is particularly present? I wouldn't have thought so. No, I'm with you. Sometimes people will fall. Other times they will appear overcome as if they've drunk a lot of wine. My daughter, one of my daughters, when she was about seven or eight, had her first experience of being overwhelmed by the Spirit. And we were at the, the North Bible Weekend, which some of you have been to. And Vicky was wandering around in the field, sort of like this. And she said, she said, she said, I'm so glad I'm not driving this afternoon. And I remember thinking, you're seven and you have no idea how to drive. But she said, I'm so glad I'm not driving this afternoon. Ha 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 ha. And she was, she was just overwhelmed by the Spirit. And for her, it was, a, it was a really significant experience in her relationship with God and her growth in God. And it makes more sense then of Ephesians 5.18 where Paul says to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but keep on being filled with the Spirit. When you've seen someone overcome in such a way that as at Pentecost they're accused of being drunk, you understand why Paul juxtaposes those two things. Because on occasions it is like that. Other times there is laughing or sobbing. Other times, prolonged and exuberant praise. Just as Mary, when she was told that she was carrying the Messiah, just bursts out in praise to God. It says, Mary, filled with the Spirit, praise the Magnificat. Other times, the sign of God's presence are much more slight and may include warmth on the hands or the face, tingling in the hands or other parts of the body. And our experience would suggest that even the fluttering of eyelids or deep breathing can often be a sign of the presence of God. One writer said this about these sorts of physical reactions. He said, I expect skepticism regarding such extreme emotional and physical responses, even from Christians. But for those who experience God's healing power, these experiences are often life-changing. Now, sometimes sincere people will ask these sorts of questions. Are these sorts of physical reactions required for people to get healed? No. Sometimes you feel nothing, they feel nothing, and they get better. But sometimes there are those. Are, is it, are these responses simply psychologically induced? I think so on occasion. But not necessarily. I'm inclined to give the benefit of the doubt because we're told to believe the best of one another. And that actually is a healthy environment. If you think somebody is over a period of time and you're a leader or their friend, just go and, and talk to them about it. We, we can, we're not going to do much Q&A, are we? Um, but we can, if you've got questions about that, we can talk about that and how you help people. Because I think sometimes people get stuck in physical reactions, which, which are maybe not over helpful. Are sometimes people simply drawing attention to themselves? Probably, on occasion. Don't you draw attention to yourself sometimes for some of the things that you do? And so, we probably just need to go easy on each other. And then if someone's doing it over a prolonged period of time, we just need to help them with it. So all of these things are possible, but as I said, is it not more, more likely that if the Holy God himself is here, that our bodies are likely to react on occasion in those sorts of ways? When should I stop praying? I would suggest when the Holy Spirit stops working. When the Holy Spirit lifts off his presence, then that's time to say, well, I think we're done for now. 
You say, but they may not be better. Well, okay. Turn around. Have a stretch. Pray again. Go for lunch. Pray again after lunch. Say we'll meet again this time next week. One of my team at Christchurch has been sick for uh, almost a year now with a, um, uh, a, a, you know, one of these um, energy, just no energy things. Started with a virus and has not had energy. And for about the last four months, uh, I prayed for her with her husband on a weekly basis. We've just had half an hour. Quick five minute, how are you doing? How's the last week been? What can we pray for? 20, 25 minutes prayer. And they're well on the way to recovery now. I would expect in the next month or two, they'll be back to working full time. They're working about two thirds of the time now. Soaking regular prayer has great effect. Francis McNutt, the Catholic teacher who's, seen, who's very experienced in this, he said he's seen more people healed through soaking prayer than any other sort of prayer. So just regular, half an hour every week, half an hour three times a week, in your lunch break for 10 minutes, regular prayer. Pray, when the, pray until the Holy Spirit lifts off. Sometimes the person praying for indicates they've had enough. Respect people you're praying for. When they've had enough, stop praying. They're more likely to ask you again if you do that. Or equally stop when you don't have anything else to pray. When, you, when, you're, when you're finished, when you're all prayed out, stop. There's nothing more energy sapping than continuing praying after you're done praying. So at those points, stop. And fifthly, and the fifth step, is post-prayer direction. Which is, what do I tell them now? Is there advice, just as Jesus said to the one, stop sinning? For some, it's maybe a discussion on temptation. How do you avoid that? With one person I prayed with recently, it was all about the way that some patterns of thinking, we prayed about their patterns of thinking, and then we talked at the end, and we said, now how are you going to live this way, thinking differently? Where are the pressure points? When is the temptations? How are you going to deal with them? Okay, we're done. Post-prayer direction, an important part of the whole deal. All right, let's just do five minutes. Any questions, and then we'll then we'll demonstrate some stuff. Any questions or comments? Yes. So by soaking prayer, I just mean um, just sort of praying on someone, inviting the Spirit to come, asking for God's healing, probably on a regular basis. You're just soaking them in the presence of God. Yes. Do you ha does the person have to be there to be healed uh, or to be prayed for? Well, the, the question is, does the person need to be there for soaking prayer? I think Scripture says the person doesn't have to be there for any sort of prayer. Of course, the centurion servant was healed at a distance. So it seems that that's quite legitimate. It does seem to be have added effectiveness if you can be with the person. Yes, at the back there. Yeah, so the question is, when I was praying for people last night and suggesting different groups, how did I get that um, revelation? We'll go into that in detail this afternoon. Uh, but it was different impressions which came in different ways. Occasionally I would see something on... Can we save that one for this afternoon? Otherwise, this, it's a sort of layer under layer. So we'll, we'll do that this afternoon. It's a great question. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, one of the ways that the gift of discernment works. So discernment is working out, is this the human spirit, is this an evil spirit, or is this the spirit of God? And all, it can be any one of three. Is this person making it up? Is this something with trouble behind it? Or is this the blessing of God? What's going on here? That's the gift of discernment. One of the ways in which you can see the Spirit is sometimes literally with your eyes. And you can see the Spirit resting on people in several different ways. Sometimes they just look very engaged. Now we may see this in a few minutes. So we're going to pray for some people. And sometimes you just see their demeanor change as you're praying for them. Is that a spiritual thing or a natural thing? I think it's more natural, but you do see it. Other times it's almost like a shimmer or a heat haze. You know a heat haze on the motorway? You can see something. Is it there or not? 
Are you like, I don't know, I, but I can see it. Where it's like that. And, I, and there was a time where I would stand by people and they would say, look, can you see that? And I would look and I would think, no, I can't see it. And over time, one learns to. Essentially, you see, what the appeal, when, when we get into this message of the kingdom, the whole appeal is there is another world. And we're big materialists. And we've tuned all our senses to living in one dimension, if you like. And what the Holy Spirit does is it invites us to live at a, at a whole other different level. And we have to wake up the tools that God's given us in order to become alert to that. And I think that's part of what's happening when we see in the Spirit, as it says. Mm. Okay, this is a, a great question. How do you discern the difference between a religious spirit and someone who's being authentic? Well, that just we need to just unpack one bit of that. What is a religious spirit? A religious spirit is a spirit that acts in a way to get attention or to perform in such a way that says I'm valuable or in other way distracts from the gospel of grace by doing things which have the outward showing of value, but not the heart. And so the question is, how do we spot when it's just, it's performance, it's because I've learned to do it this way. Some, some whole communities are full of this. And essentially what it is, is I've learned if I act in a certain way, that has value in this community. So if I carry a Bible this size, if I dress in this, in these clothes, if I say certain things, that is value here. Now that can become religious. Is it wrong to dress in certain clothes? Is it wrong to have a certain size Bible? No, it's not. It just doesn't matter. It's all about the heart. So the religious spirit gets behind those outward sorts of things and elevates them and makes them important. How do you discern the difference? Firstly, instinct. There are some people who you just feel awkward or nervous about. Your conclusion often is that it's just you being a nasty person. I want to suggest that sometimes at least it's actually the gift of discernment. It, it just doesn't feel quite right. And one of the ways that we hear more of the voice of the Lord is we ask him questions. So we get something and you think, why is that? What is that? When I was, just to try and break this down a little bit, last night we invited Sibit to come, there was one person I looked at what I could see was someone playing really complicated, a really complicated piano piece. Now, my first thought was, is that person a musician? Is this a word of knowledge prefacing a prophecy? And then I thought, no, I didn't feel it was. I thought this person is doing something they would consider impossible. Now, if you remember, we started last night with people who felt God was asking them to do things that were impossible. So that's how I saw it. I didn't know what it was initially, so I had to ask the question, Lord, what are you saying or doing? And it's the same often with just our gut feel. And I think often with religious spirits, it's just a gut feel. You just think, it just doesn't feel quite right. Other times, just talk with them. And sometimes you can just help by just saying, you know, you don't have to do that. Or why is it that you always come so smart or so casual? And work either way around or whatever and just help them some thoughts yes does the five-step prayer model work with with people who are seeking jesus absolutely i would really encourage you to introduce people whenever you're wanting to help people explore faith introduce them to a relationship not a set of propositions because can people who haven't yet come to faith hear god's voice I think you did, didn't you? You did before you came to faith. That's how you got there. So introduce them to a relationship. And you can definitely use this sort of process. I would encourage you to do that. Abby. Great. So a uh, question that Abby is saying is, how do I use language which is natural and doesn't freak out people who are not used to a church culture? I think we have all got a journey to go on if our communities are to be full of people who are seeking faith. 
to find ways of expressing orthodox biblical Christianity in ways that are meaningful to our culture. And I suggest it's a bit like riding a bike. You'll fall off a few times, but you have to get going and you learn as you go along. So I think it's, I think it's really important to be aware of it. I think we need to be sensitive to it and we need to practice and work out ways with whoever the group of people we're reaching. Thank you.